Robert Gowan sitting here, mentors from military at 15 Perry Street once again, and appreciate these guys for allowing us to come in here. And I'm sitting with Chris Van Sant, who I guess it's been a couple months at least that you did a co-host. I'm trying to think, okay, when was the last time? Yeah, it was definitely a co-host. Brad, Brad Thomas. Yeah, with Brad, yeah. Yeah. So this will be like your fourth or fifth. You're becoming like a pro at this. I like being in the studio. It's kind of fun. <laughs> I love having you here. Um, so and it's always good when you're in person. And you just happened to be traveling through, which was great. Yeah, yeah. No, I was on the East Coast already um, doing some stuff for work in North Carolina. I was supposed to have a meeting on Monday, but um, some guys came down with COVID. So, yeah, so this is my last night in town. But luckily, it worked out, and I got to come down and sit with you and talk for a while. Well, hopefully we'll get a chance to do this again. I know that um, we're trying to schedule something with mutual friends of you and Brad and if that ends up happening to where we can schedule that episode and stuff that'll be great uh, but on this one here I decided to send out an Instagram post and ask people you know hey Chris is coming on what would you like to hear this time and we're going to run through some of those things for sure uh, but I thought kind of what's in line with that is in the social media world that we have today um, a lot of people end up making judgments based on you know, what they put out there in their profile, what they share within a post, or maybe what they don't and how they act or how they perceive them. And we had a little bit of a conversation before this that I think it might be cool to expand upon because some people even do that at work. And earlier, you know, one of our guests was talking about how for so long, for five years, before he finally got to a unit that actually hit and deployed, he was you know, non-sleeve combat deployment and was sized up just for that purpose. Right. And uh, so I think it kind of feeds into a little bit about what we were talking about off air. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the, uh, the military civilian world does it too, but I think it breeds judgment. Um, and I think social media in particular, uh, you know, people put out, they cultivate whatever it is that they want to cultivate. But I, like I was saying to you before we went on air, I think it's really important to truly get to know people. Um, particularly coworkers. Uh, when you're in the service, it's critical. The more you know about that person on your left and your right, the more connected you are to them, the more you understand them. Um, with, with coworkers, it's the same thing. You need to know how people tick. Uh, you need to understand what motivates them, um, what doesn't. Uh, and then as you move into leadership roles, those things are absolutely critical in getting the best out of your people. Um, but I find that you know a lot of people look at someone uh, or they look at what they see or what they hear in, in small chance encounters or what they see over social media and they pass judgment versus actually trying to get to know somebody. Uh, and you never know what someone's story is. You never know what their background is. Uh, some people are open about things and some people aren't. But until you take the time to truly get to know them, you don't know what lessons learned you can take away from them. And I think that's important in any situation. We talked about this topic in a very different way in a couple of guys that came on an earlier podcast, uh, the 20-Year War book. And the whole reason why I think they did that was much of what you were talking about, because if you think about past generations, you know, World War II vets, Korean vets, uh, Vietnam vets, there was a period of time where they wanted to suppress their military experience, and so they went out there, climbed the corporate ladder, did amazing things, started companies as entrepreneurs or whatever, and nobody knew that backstory. And I think I can understand, as veterans listening to this, you can totally see that, oh, yeah, I can see that, and I, I know that I've, I've, I've got my own friends and stuff, including myself, that doesn't like to talk about combat situations or whatever the case may be, but then expand that to more of what you're talking about is that... Sometimes you make a quick judgment based on first impression. And I, I will say that I, 
Maybe we all do it. I tend to do it a lot. And I end up making a first impression that may not necessarily be positive. And um, sometimes I'm pretty right. Uh, but I'm not always right, you know, about those types of situations. So I don't know if that's something that, you know, we automatically, I don't know if it's because like they were talking about a competition thing and that's why we're doing it or where it really comes from. But you quickly try to size somebody up. And like in the military, you look at you and you look at your chest, you look at your sleeves, you look at everything and you go, oh, yeah, all right, I got you, you know. Yeah, I think the military breeds a lot of that, um, you know. Personally, I always felt like the Marine Corps kind of got it right with but nothing. With nothing. Yep. Um, you know, everybody's a Marine. Yeah. There was um, a time frame where they didn't even have the name. Yeah. You know, just U.S. Marine Corps, and you know. And I say that being very proud of the schools that I attended and things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, there's different reasons for it, but yeah, I think the military sort of breeds that that judgment. Um, but the the funny thing about it is, and now we look at, you know, twenty some odd years of war later. There's lots of people from varying backgrounds that have been in lots of unique situations, and you really just don't know until you get to know that person. Um, so don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to talk to people. Um, and never weight your experiences against somebody else's until you know all of those facts. I think you gotta you got to take it all in. I find um, a lot of times where, again, I, I try not to do it, but I, I, I've seen experiences where individuals will be really trying to size a person up based on, you know, quickly asking a few questions, running through the gamut, maybe even go out and look at LinkedIn profile, like you're talking about in the private sector, doing those types of things to build the profile. And I mean, we talk about it, um, or we see it in the news and police force and everything else where they're profiling. And there is a bit of that that just kind of naturally goes on between individuals. And again, this may go very deep and it has partly to do with the military community because it's something that we automatically do, but I think it's almost just mankind, humankind. Oh, I think so too. Yeah, yeah for sure. I, it happens in every walk of life. It's funny you bring up the media because that's a great example, not to tie the two together, but with the military, they'll throw any you know general officer from any generation or any time on TV and, and let you oh, yeah. take in his or her opinions on whatever the current uh, state of affairs is globally. And, you know, sometimes they just flat out don't know what they're talking about. Um, there might be somebody. <laughs> there, you might be speaking of something that's going on even right now. I mean, with all the different military people that any news agency can track, uh, you know, put onto in front of the camera to ask them their opinion of what's going on with the drawdown. For sure. Yeah, there's a lot of opinions flying around with Afghanistan um, and, you know, how people feel about this and how people feel about that. And, you know, I see a lot of stuff on social media where, People are like, ah, oh, you know, I, I feel sorry for our soldiers because, you know, all of this was for nothing. Well, no, it wasn't. I mean, we gave 20 years of, of a decent life to people that otherwise couldn't have had it in Afghanistan. Without us there, they wouldn't have even had those 20 years. So you don't know. We could have enabled a, a generation of folks that through a combination of timing and circumstance, you know, we're able to get out of that or we're able to make a better life for themselves or who knows. Um, so there's always positive there. I think there's just so much negativity and people tied to politics. And when you're outside like us, you know, when you're retired, yeah, you can have an opinion about it and you can tell whoever you want that. When you're in, your job is to do what you're told to do, follow those orders. And you can't get caught up in the geopolitical ramifications and thinking about that or a, you're not going to be effective at your job, and B, we're not going to be effective as a country. So, yeah, I'm a little more like, yeah, it happens. Um, I think 
we all felt like this at some point would happen. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing. I think if you ask any veteran about what happened in Iraq, they, any, the, the lowly private in a platoon that did a rotation to Iraq can tell you, oh yeah, this is going to be a shit show when everybody leaves. Um, it didn't take a degree in geopolitical science to understand that. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of opinions out there, which is fine. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. Um, but I think you should be careful who you digest opinions from and make sure you understand who that person is and where that perspective is coming from. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, <clears throat> when you're looking at trying to size up individuals, even for, <clears throat> I'm seeing like on the outside, roles or position that you're out there trying to hire a new full-time employee or something of that nature. Unfortunately, we only get a sound bite sometimes of a person and what they're willing to put out there. And I'll use that as an example of how sometimes you only get 30 minutes, an hour to determine, is this person the right cultural fit, you know, with your organization? Is this person, does they, do they have the right skills and experience and talent? And we can see some of it on paper, but we're also asking questions to see the depth and breadth of that as well, you know, as we have those uh, conversations. And um, so there's a bit of like sizing that goes up and, and those types of things. But in, in the military, it's not until after you start spending that time as a leader, sitting down with that individual, talking about their past, trying to understand and things, some things that you can't even talk about in the private sector now. You, you can't do that out here. You right. can't talk about, you know, necessarily a whole lot about the family and about their past and growing up. And those HR will be on top of you quickly. But in the military, you have that opportunity to do that, seize that opportunity so that you can get to know these individuals more on a personal level, either because you're leading them or maybe to break down that opinion of what that person was like. And if you don't do it, you're going to keep putting up that wall and giving that person, never giving that person the opportunity to really shine. Absolutely. I mean, I think as a, it's a two-way street, right? I think leaders have expectations out of their subordinates and you need to understand what your subordinates, what, like I said earlier, what makes them tick, um, what motivates them, what doesn't, and what works with them. And you take a different tact, take a different leadership style with each individual. I think that lesson is applicable in the outside world or in the military. Like to your point, it's a little easier in the military. It is a little easier, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, because you always got to worry about the question that you just asked. You know, all right, was that? Am I, am I okay with that? Yeah. Am I supposed to say that? And you know, am I going to? Well, in the circumstance where you can um, <clears throat> test an individual, so to speak, yeah, um, I think that happens more frequently in the military. In the yeah. civilian world, you know, you may that person may not bump up against a challenge where you get to see their true metal for six months of being yep. in a job. You know, yeah. most of it's status quo. So. Um, yeah, you definitely got to pay attention to that. Got to really think about those things. When you're an individual that comes into a new office situation or a new team and you're taking on individuals that you have no clue about, um, you know, that's where I think when my own personal experience, I tried not to size up somebody quickly. I really did try to put myself more on a 90 day, 120 day cycle. Let me give this time. You know, let me ask probing questions in the very beginning, but not take opinions from others about the experiences that they had with these particular individuals that are going to now be part of my team that I've inherited and instead um, build my own opinions and build my own um, ideas about whether or not I think that they're going to be successful as a part of this organization or whether they're going to be a challenge or those types of things. And I can remember particularly one situation where um, it was one of my first roles as an executive actually in, in the private sector where they gave me a team and they kind of gave me the not so good team. 
And they were hoping that I could kind of help change that area around, but also they just didn't want the burden anymore. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what it was. So it's all right here, Robert, you take care of this. You get the project. Yes. <laughs> and, and the idea is that maybe you can get something out of that, but every meeting that I went to and everything that I did, there was always this little nagging person on my side here that kept coming to me, you know, peers or whatever. It was like, you can't get nothing out of that team, you know, blah, 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 this person, you know, and it was like, just give me time, you know, give me time. And then when I started learning about the people, like we're talking about, so I tried to really get into what makes them tick as much as I could that HR would allow, you know, and building that and understanding that I began to find out that these people are not as bad as what they're saying they are. They're really up against some major challenges that it's not that they're tr not trying to do it, but no one understands what they're doing either. They're not taking the time to understand the challenges that they're living in on a daily basis. And so for that reason, when they try to explain it, it's just noise. It's Charlie Brown's teacher to that right. other person, you know. So that other person then automatically assumes you don't want to do it. You're not, you're not, you're not willing to be a team player across the board. Um, you guys are on your, in your own little clique and you're not wanting to work. And I found more times that they wanted to reach across the divide. And the problem actually wasn't that team that I had inherited. It was a lot of the others. Yeah. But it took me a long time to get to that point because I, I gave the time. I gave the three or four months. I could have walked in the door and said, every one of these people need to get fired. My job here is try to figure out the way I can make it quickly. Yep. Yeah. I, I, and sometimes you do have to pull the bandaid off and just yeah. start over. But yeah, but yeah I, Lee Busby and I... You know, Lee works for Tier Tactical with me, and, and um, he's uh, our VP of Armor. And we're, you know, we build a new building and a lot of machinery, and there's a lot of hiring that goes on related to that. Um, and we've had some ebb and flow where we've had some people that have been with us that have left. Um, and then you try to fill those holes as well as trying to expand into some other roles. And uh, it's been it's been a challenge. And Lee and I talk about that a lot. It's generationally there's differences between people. Oh, yeah. Um, but Lee, I think as an example, is really focused on trying to understand what makes them tick. Um, you know, they're, they're much more transient than like our generation of people. We used to go do something and we would stay there for 20 years or 30 mm -hmm. years or whatever. And mm -hmm. you understood that I got to just outwork everybody and hopefully I will continue to advance. But there was a built in loyalty. Yeah. Not as much loyalty today. Yeah, it's, they're way more transient. It's I'm going to mm -hmm. do something for two or three years, and I'm going to move on to the next thing. Well, it's not necessarily the worst thing. Sometimes mm -hmm. you can get really good stuff out of people, uh, and then you bring in some new blood, and you get some really good stuff out of those people. But you got to approach that from a different angle than you did with, say, you know, our generation of folks. So Yeah. Well, yeah. and the military, because you're kind of stuck. In, if you're not in a soft, and especially in a conventional force, you're stuck. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you got to wait for them to PCS, you to PCS, or something to, for them to trip up so that you can discharge them out, right. you know. And then they end up becoming a thorn in your side and everything. But in the private sector, you're right. It's a, There's a little bit more of a nuance that you got to end up doing out there in um, trying to manage the, the staff and, and to build that team. And in today's generation, it's really more of a what's in it for me. Yep. And and that's I don't necessarily look at that as a bad thing. Um, like you just said, you can get the people turning over. You've got one segment that's running along that's been there for a long time, and that's great. But over time, if that's all you had, you'd have serious problems because everybody would say that's that's the way we've always done it. Right. 
And then you have the new crowd that's constantly turning over, but it's hard to get sustainability and, and you know, and, and your capabilities running at the same level because you have constant turnover and training that you're having to do. Right. But you're infusing in, ca- in some cases innovation. Yeah. And so maybe there's maybe there's a change of path there. Maybe you build in that continuity, continuity in a different aspect in your business, mm-hmm. you know, a, a different role. Um, usually it's a leader, but that's your continuity. And then you just accept the fact that, Hey, every so many years, I'm going to, I'm going to turn this over and I'm a new batch, but I'm going to get some fresh ideas. There's going to be some new education, some new information. Who knows? You Mm -hmm. don't know um, Mm -hmm. until you explore that, but you got to be open to it. Like you're not going to change culture. Um, that is something that's affected by a thousand different things and you kind of get what you get. So yeah, yeah, you got to kind of roll with the punches. I kind of wonder if it's like, you know, we got on the topic, um, a little bit with somebody as well. And I know we've talked, uh, you and I have talked about post-traumatic stress and everything and what is normal, you know, and, and, and I think even in this topic here, what we're talking about, especially around change, change management, how you deal with it, how you deal with people and how you size them up and everything else is that what, what frankly is normal? What is it that you're trying to, to, what is your benchmark that you're trying to put the individual against, or you're trying to put the business against or whatever, because what we've found today is that technology, the world is spinning faster, the whole thing. And that, um, and generation, uh, plays into this thing too, to where I think it's really challenging to try to get a baseline and stick with it as a litmus test of that's normal because normal is now moving. It's, it's changing. Yep. Yeah. I mean, the example I was just talking about at work, um, you know, we had, we had three guys that did basically the same job, um, engineer related, uh, Things were moving along great. Um, the newest addition of the three, we probably knew the least about, uh, and two of them decided to move on to something else. The one that stayed was the newest one to the team. Um, and one of the first things, and again, this is something Lee and I were talking about, one of the first things that he said, and he's young like them, he's fresh out of college like them, you know, there's a lot of similarities, but he said, I don't get it. He's like, I don't, I don't understand why they left. And then we had deeper conversations related to that. Mm-hmm. But I think what we figured out was he was just raised different than those other two. Mm. Um, his idea of work ethic was more similar to ours in that, you know, I'm going to put my head down and, and do what I need to do. So now it's expanded into we've identified that in this individual, given him greater responsibility, and he's, and he's flourishing in that environment. But, you know, sometimes it takes circumstance to figure those things out. But if you're not open to it, if you're not looking for it, you're going to miss it. I tend to find the same things as well when I was a consultant and working with clients that there would be some people, you know, in in the military, we call it commander's intent. There were people within the private sector that weren't recognizing, and I've seen this as well in the military, they weren't recognizing commander's intent rather easily. And it's because I think what you just described, uh, and as you were saying it, made me think about it, it's that they weren't open to it. They weren't receptive to it. They instead were always constantly looking for the negative opportunities or the things that they can bitch and moan about instead of seeing the positive outcomes. And if they, they may have to be the very person that has to change in this process as opposed to waiting for change to come. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're a civilian or you're in the military, but whatever your professional path takes you, you, you work for someone, you work for a company, you work for an NCO or an officer in the military, 
you need to understand the direction that they want to go and you need to do everything in your power to keep everything going in that direction. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, by the same token, leaders need to understand their people, what's in the realm of possible, what isn't, um, what uh, back to what motivates them, what doesn't, um, and getting the best you can out of each of those individuals and bringing them together into a cozy, cohesive team. I think that the parallels are the same. Yeah. What do you think? I'm curious to know because this is one of the questions that people asked about the new army or the new military that we're headed into because it's a bit of what we were talking about off air. Um, going back to the very beginning of what you saw, especially you know in the invasions and how the country was perhaps at that time frame, but I also see it from being a soldier from the Cold War era of we've now got the same two countries who are coming at us with China and Russia and the bit of the Cold War, the sleeping bear and dragon that have been sitting there, we're starting to see a little bit more or notice a lot more now, and it's heightened within a, a very short window. And for those who weren't paying attention, now this is something new too. Yeah. And so it's going to take us into a little bit of a garrison type of format because now we don't know where we're going next, what the next thing might be. And there probably will be something soon. Mm -hmm. We don't know what soon, how to define that. But how do you see, um, how do you see people kind of adjusting to that who, who still have a contract to do? Yeah. I mean, I, I hope I, you know, when you change mission, when you do something else, there's an element of still demonstrating strength, power, and competence to the rest of the world. And when you don't, that's when people get froggy. That's mm -hmm. when other superpowers within the world get froggy. So I think it's critical of, and this is just my opinion, I think of leadership, both political and military, I think it's critical to pay attention to that. And that if you look weak and you are perceived as weak, people are going to push and test. Um, so the actions they take in the next year or two, I think are absolutely going to be critical in terms of reestablishing that strength, that technological advanced nature of the United States. I think they're going to have to really focus on both those things. It's a hard thing as a leader. You're talking about the leadership. I mean, if you're an NCO or an officer right now, it's about, you know, talking about what's going on, but then saying, hey, listen, guys, we don't know when that next phone call is going to uh, come. We have to train even that much harder now, not knowing what that situation may be that we're walking into, M much like in the early days of invasion, you didn't know really what you, you had an idea, but you didn't have a, a you know, 100% idea of what you were walking into. And, and of course, the enemies always has a vote. But it also makes it more challenging to motivate the individuals when they don't see, like we were talking about <coughs> earlier, they don't see that um, end game. They don't see the combat. I'm going, I'm preparing now for the next six months before uh, deployment. But I know that I'm going to go kicking indoors at that time frame. At some point, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I, just this past week, I was at an event in North Carolina, and uh, they had, you know, it was like a, uh, it was like a full mission profile event. So mm -hmm. vendors were vendors supported it with equipment, and then you had basically role players that went through a full mission profile, and it was a soft mission, um, and the role players were all like prior service guys. And so going in, I was thinking it was going to be a bunch of old dudes. It wasn't. It was it was a bunch of younger kids that, that mm. most of which, you know, did time in Marine Force Recon or they were an Army Ranger or whatever. And so the, the team that I had was um, four relatively young Army Rangers uh, that had been in the service for four or six years or whatever. And one of them did a four-year tour in the Ranger Regiment and didn't deploy to combat. 
in those four years. Wow. That's what I said. And it really (laughs) surprised me. Yes. And it made me think, wow, we are really, you couple that moment with the, the pulling out of Afghanistan and all the things that are going on globally. And I thought, wow, man, we're, we're like right on the cusp of going back to what it was like when I came in the army. You know, when you came in the army, yeah, yeah. you know, well, we, when I came, it was like Vietnam vets. Yeah. Right. Right. So, and, and same thing, like yeah. when, when I started out in Ranger Regiment or know, Desert Storm vets or yeah, yeah. you had, you had mm-hmm. guys with, with mustard stains on their jump wings, you know, because <laughs> right. they did a combat jump. Yeah. Panama. Or, and, yeah. Right, and it was like, now looking back, I, we giggle. It was, those dudes were awesome and they gave us great training mm-hmm. and we idolized them even though it was only a handful of missions in, in Panama or Grenada, you know, or, Grenada or, 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 or the first storm. Gulf War. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I thought this past week. I was like, wow, we, we are uh, headed back to that. And then, you know, going into this weekend and having some conversations um, more on the post-traumatic stress and TBI in that yeah. realm and talking to people, I got thinking, man, I really hope they're paying attention to taking care of our soldiers right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Because you have a entire generation of mid-level and upper-level leadership, particularly on the non-commissioned officer side, that has an incredible amount of experience and a wealth of knowledge to be able to ed- ed- educate the next coming generations. And those younger guys aren't going to get those those combat rotations that teach you all these things pretty quickly. Yep. So if we don't take care of these guys that are on the heels of this, we're going to go back to 1980s army where you're not going to have a lot of knowledge because everybody from the Vietnam era got out and we draw yep. down the force and could happen here too, because people are disinterested or dis, uh, genu- what, what do you call it? What's the right word? These that I'm looking for where they get, they're upset at everything that's going on and they feel like, you know what? I don't, I don't want to be this kind of role playing or in this type of setting of military anymore. I'm oh, out. Yeah. I'm checking out. I'm, one, I'm getting out because yeah. I, I, if you're like, if you're that guy, he got out. He spent four years in a Ranger regiment. And he didn't deploy to combat. That's probably all he wanted to do was yep. go serve his country in the greatest possible game because that's how you're wired when you're that age. Yeah. You know, he's 20, yep. 22 years old, and everything that he thinks about is is going and doing the job in the game, and mm-hmm. he didn't get to do it. And he was, I could hear the shame in his voice, like as he was telling me. Like just in passing conversation, I was like, well, that's nothing to be ashamed of because I heard it. And he was like, well, you know, I just, I always thought I would do this. And I was like, nah, man, I was like, you got a ton of good training. You got a wealth of knowledge. You had a great four years in the service. And now you're going to take that into whatever you choose to do next. You should be proud of that. You should, you can't choose your timing, your place, your location. You can't pick if you go to combat or not. Yeah. But there was, there were NCO or there were people that were coming in that would size up their peers as to whether or not they had the combat experience. Oh yeah. They would put the pressure on it. So I can only imagine this guy lived with that constant pressure all the time to where it was like, I'm fed up, I'm done. But then, like you said, he probably deals with the whole guilt or the whole issue of I'm not as good. Yeah. I'm, I can't call myself. I'm not equal. My challenges are not the same as this guy. Yeah. Well, I think that, that, I, that's on all of us. That's on that's on leaders to to pay attention to that stuff and take care of that stuff. Like like I with him, you know, one of the four of them, and they knew who I was. Mm-hmm. Like one of them followed me on social media or whatever or something, and and so there's just like I had it when I was them. I'm sure it was sort of like I can't relate to you. To the, yeah. There's like that yeah. mystique, and and uh, you know, after 20 minutes of hanging out with the guys, they realized, oh. Chris is just like, uh, he's just a regular dude like the rest of us. And then they start opening up and you start talking to them. Yeah, man, like it goes back to our initial point. Like you don't know people's story. Like, yeah, 
it doesn't matter how old or how young or what you think they've done or what you see or what they're wearing on their chest. Like you, you need to get to know people. Um, and, and you need to pay attention to that stuff. So yeah, I, it was a weird week with the Afghanistan stuff and just everything that went on. I was really thinking about that. I was like, man, it's going to be really weird in another four or five years when, mm-hmm. you know, you know, if we're lucky, nothing does happen. Yeah. But if something does, they, they could have a mass exodus on their hands if they don't pay attention. Well, when after Desert Storm, I mean, all of those. So you had Vietnam, which you had a lot of them were draftees and everything else. And so some of some guys, whether they were a draftee or not, they may have came in as a draftee, but then ended up liking the service and staying, you know, uh, or they, they may have came in as back then it was called, you know, especially the army it was called regular army, which meant that you definitely came as a volunteer. Right. And um, so in those types of sense, you had a segment of, of NCOs or in officers that end up staying, but you didn't know which one you're getting. It's sort of like a box of chocolates. You didn't know whether you were getting the good NCO that stayed or the bad, or the bad one that stayed, right? <laughs> and you're right. I think we are kind of headed to that because you're going to have a quick turnover here probably within the next five to seven years. People are going to be doing some serious soul searching about did they join the military now that there's not a war? Is this really what they want to do any longer? And then there will be those who figure, okay, I'm close to my 20. Let me go ahead and do it. But are they are they going to become the retired on active duty guys who then just kind of give up? They're not really wanting to, to do the right thing and yep. be the right leader because I'm not training men for anything. So this is hard, you know, and I, I agree with you. We're going to see some real telling moments in the probably the first two years here as we first kind of get through the numbness and the shock of it. We knew it was coming. Yep. But, but now that it's here. It's the shock now in a different way of the reality of what do I do now? But you can't, they can't sit on their haunches. If, if they just sit back and lick wounds, it's just going to continue to spiral. Like, well, like you were a recruiter at one point in your mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. I, I was thinking about that. I was like, shit. Like everybody joins the army for a different reason. It's, there's been studies on it. The Wall mm-hmm. Street Journal did an article on it. You know, like people that come in the service to do, trades and things like that. I mean, I be a mechanic, be yeah. w- whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, they join for different reasons than your kid that joins to be an army ranger or an infantryman. Mm-hmm. The kid that joined to be an army ranger and infantryman by and large did it because he wants to go fight for his country. Mm-hmm. Well, if nothing's going on, yeah. What's going to happen to those numbers of kids that realize they're not going to be able to go do that. It's, it's a fair point. And right now, many of the kids that are joining were born after nine 11. Oh Yeah. So those who were coming in, and you think about the percentage of individuals, I think on active duty, it would make up less than 5% of uh, the total population is actually serving in the, I think, active duty and reserve and guard. And I know somebody's probably going to correct me, but it's around that number. Um, And when you think about that and you start already um, going up against additional challenges in the workplace or the things that are going on in the economy or whatever. If it's really good, who wants to come in? And and you're right, I did see it back then. And we used to go through um, sales training that would help us find the dominant buying motive of Chris. So I would get to talking to you and I'd try to find out, is it education that you're button? Is it ser- uh, yeah, right. service to country that you're right. button? Is it money that you're button? You know, what is it that is going to trigger so that I can then put the sell on you? and convince you to come in. And education always was one of those things that, you know, a lot of a lot of kids just didn't have the money right. to go to school. They wanted to. They may not even have the education in high school, but they knew that one day they would want to get a degree. Right. 
So it was easy to sell the GI Bill. Yep. So it may still be okay. You might be able to still push that uh, to some uh, degree, but you know that number is going to be coming smaller and smaller. And from a military force, you're probably going to have some politicians that look at it and say, well, our defense bu- uh, budget is already too large. This is, might be a great opportunity. Do we really need all these forces? Trim, and you know this is going to happen. To trim the fat a little bit. Yeah, man, we're going to go down and we're going to start looking at it. And it's not, never the tanks. It's never the aircraft. It's always the people. And so they start looking at, you know, it's just like in a job. We deal with this on a daily basis. You know, you start looking at the people first. You go over there and you go, okay, we got to draw down. We got to cut, you know, bottom lines, not getting where we needed to be. So in order to make greater margin, um, John, Bill, and Susie, I need you to go back and cut 5%, you know, out of your budget. And I'm not talking about the projects that are really important to us right now. I think you know where I'm talking about. And it's the headcount. Well, but but what's what's really scary is when they have cut down forces in the past, how do they do it? They offer early outs. They offer the 15-year retirement yep. package. Yep. They, people that are over 20, they or they or they trim the fat with the time and grade stuff. Yep. But if you do that, the counterpoint to cutting down on your active duty National Guard and Reserve budget is now you're adding a whole bunch more people to the disability, to the VA system, to the retirement. That's already taxed. That's already that's already an unsustainable platform. Yep. And we know that. Yep. Like there, it is a mess. Like I wouldn't want to be the person that has to try to solve those problems right now. Yeah. But from a recruitment standpoint, I agree. I mean, I came in the army under the GI bill and got, I think I got the, I never used it, but I got the $30,000 college fund. Yep. We weren't at war. We were in between events and I thought that was cool. That was an incentive for me. Yep. Um, and maybe, maybe you bring some of that back, but I think they need to focus on training. I think they need to make a recruiting push and go, you know, forget the go to war stuff you have an opportunity right now as an American that wants to serve your country to be trained by the best, the best people in the world that have been at war for two decades. And they're going to make you the best so that you are the most capable fighting force on the planet in the event that we ever call on you again. Like, I think you got to change the narrative a little bit. You could, but here's the problem that I'll, I'll flip that one on this ear because you were talking about who do you, who are you going to offer the incentives to, to get out? You said it. The leadership. Yeah. So you're getting rid of the leadership. It is too, yeah. And you're getting the lower leaders. You and know, like those. you said, how do you get the good ones to stay? Cause right. Because that's what happened before. Good it guys did. got out. Yeah. And, and your trash stayed. And yep. Yeah. That's it's tough. So man. you might have a you might have a you know a junior NCO like a E four you know corporal or a sergeant or maybe even a staff sergeant that goes, hey man, you know I've, I'm not at that point where I, uh, I'm ready to get out or that I can take the incentive and do that. Right. I've got a family. You know, right now jobs are tight or however they're looking at their own little space in their own little bubble and world. And and yet, though, E7s, E8s, yeah. E9s, you know, O3, uh, O3s through or definitely O4s and up are going to be at a, at a stage to where that 12, 15 year mark where they may be looking like now I'll go ahead and take that. Yeah, I'll take that 15 year retirement. Yeah, yeah. And so we lose that good leadership talent. Yeah. And they were right back because I saw this. And there was a period of time before 9-11 happened where this very thing happened from those who served, again, Vietnam phased out. Those leaders kind of went through. They served their 25, even 30 years, and they moved on, uh, or 20. And then you had the um, Grenada, um, the uh, Panama, and the Desert Storm officers and NCOs that before 9-11, they started phasing out, too. It was already at that point because they got rid of so much of the top part. Yeah. 
it back at the right after Desert Storm. And I mean, I was at Fort Benny when the floods opened and they come walking back and everybody was like, I'm getting a new pickup truck, yeah. man. I'm yeah, taking yeah, the yeah. money, you know, and uh, getting that lump sum thing or they get it paid out over six years. I think it was. Whatever or, it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they saw this as like their golden ticket. But closer to 9-11, that that breadth of knowledge and experience and leadership that was needed is was very small. Yep. And those were the individuals that had to lead us into this war that's now 20 years long. For sure. And those were the guys that had to pave the way. And you were one of those at that time frame that then had to school up quickly. Oh, yeah. Everybody that was coming behind you. Well, that's what I was going to say. I would be... I'll, so I'm going to take this second right here to do my part for Army recruiting <laughs> and Army sustainment. Go for it. <laughs> you know, when I joined the service... Um, but whatever your reasons. When I, but when I joined the service, I joined the service in 1995. We didn't go to war till post 9-11, until 2001. Yep, six years later. Six so, years later. So I had six years of, of being in the Army prior. Didn't know if we were going to go. We didn't know any of that stuff was going to happen. It all happened. Yep. And I spent a decade at war. And then I spent five years, basically, on the on the backside of that, supporting the warfighter. I got something. From, full gamut. Full gamut. I got something from every phase of my career, whether... We were at war. We weren't. Whether whether I was serving in war or supporting warfare, um, there are things that happen over the course of your military career that will lead to your success or failure in what you choose to do next. Um, and without each and every one of those pieces, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. So I would say to people still in the service, you never know when the next one's going to come. Do your part to hold on to those good soldiers and continue to train the next generation. Because when you're gone, somebody's got to continue to carry the flag um, and you got to do your part. And then to soldiers or future service members out there listening, I would say the military can still be one of the greatest life experiences you will ever have. And it will make you successful in whatever you choose to do, whether you spend four years or 10 years or 20 years and retire. Um, it's absolutely worth it because, I mean, there's just like we're saying, man, there's got to be a lot of people going now what? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I hope I hope that they work through it. Uh, you know, it's going to be a, I think it's going to be rocky only in that. Again, you've got to have people who are still in those leadership roles who are at are, or are you those people who transitioned in to help guide the path out? Because otherwise, I think there's a bit of floundering. You know, like I was uh, talking to an active duty first sergeant as, as one of the podcasts recently. Um, he's in Ranger Regiment. But, you know, there is this challenge that, you know, for Rangers, you, you, you go to become a Ranger, you know, like you were talking about, to go to the fight, to take the fight to the enemy. Yep. And yet all of a sudden now it's like, what? We're not, we're not going anywhere? We're not going to do anything? Well, you don't know. But we're still going to train real damn hard because we could get the call tomorrow type of thing. That's right. Um, but it, it's going to take a special type of leader, I believe, in order to do that. And it's always taken a special type of individual to come into the military service. And um, it was interesting when I was on recruiting duty that I would meet individuals that, for me, it didn't matter whatever reason what it was that you were coming in. The fact that you were willing to give of yourself, and let's face it, those of us who serve in the military, it's not like we're looking for that you know, special badge. I think maybe some people are looking for that special badge when you walk around and says, hey, I'm a veteran type of thing. Um, you know, since so you get a pat on the back. But Don't they call those Navy SEALs? <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> or, I had to throw one in. I'm just being funny. Or those uh, those PX Warriors that have all the stickers on the back of their, yeah, their yeah, pickup yeah, truck yeah. and everything. Two or one file on your pickup. That's right. So, I mean, you know, I think there there are individuals that join for a number of different reasons. And, and when I would find, what I found is that they each joined uh, to give of themselves. Yeah. And there are people that are still out there. And yet they also joined not knowing what was going to happen. And they may have joined for to earn a trade. You sure. know, to earn an income, learn a skill, to learn a skill, yeah. right? And you know, there's a series within the private sector that we always see ebbs and flows of uh, as leaders. Is that you have the vocational, and then you have the educated. You know, the college educated, and sometimes the, these, you know, in high school, they would, you know, the counselors would tend to try to figure out who was going to be the vocational route and who was going to be the college route, so that they can help counsel that individual on the right path sure. and kind of blue collar versus white collar, however you wanted to look at it. And, and in this much as the same way as um, in the private sector, you'll see opportunities where college education matters. It matters that you have a college degree and you're probably not going to get very far. And then there's other times where, you know what, college education doesn't matter. Yep. What's your experience? Yep. You know, what have you really done and brought to the table? Whether you have a degree or not doesn't matter as much as you know how to, how to, get, how to get us out of the situation. Absolutely. I mean, we've, we've TIER has hired a lot of prior service folks. And I'm talking about my generation of guys. We have a lot of those too, um, you know, retired from one profession or the other. But a lot of the younger people that we're hiring, we're looking for prior service folks because mm. they are just wired different than someone the same age that didn't serve. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's a good thing, man. Like that's something that we got to hold on to. That's critical. I always, I, I make the joke and I don't mean this as in race, but you know, DOD is the most equal opportunity employer on the planet. Yeah. They get it right. You can be a, a wealthy kid that grew up in Hollywood, California with a silver spoon in your mouth and you can join the service and do any job. Or you can be the poor kid that grew up with no shoes and the service will take you and train you to do any job. Yep. Like that's pretty cool. When you see guys coming into the military that um, struggled to get a GED, you know, fell out of the school. They weren't the, you know, they knew that they didn't commit themselves sure. or they struggled uh, during school. Get a GED, maybe not even score that great on the ASVAB, come into the service, and yet um, over time they better themselves. They go get a college education, which means they didn't get just that certificate by showing up. Right. They actually had to work for it and go through, you know, the difficult uh, college courses and stuff and apply themselves now differently, but they're also old older and really advance themselves within the military career, that mindset that they're now laying the foundation for then helps them within the private sector, wherever they go, because now they know what it takes in order to get there. And maybe they already knew that when they were coming in, that's why they wanted to come in the military. They just wanted a chance. But I think um, you're right. I think there's no better place than to find this uh, or uh, no better place in the military to find your place and to really get a, an opportunity to, to grow, to get an education, to learn a trade, just to learn how to lead individuals, you know, all those types of things. That's, sure. our, that's our userec pitch. We didn't get paid for it. We but. did. I know. <laughs> we should get a T-shirt or something. Uh, something, right? <laughs> I don't even get a... Never mind. <laughs> Yeah. So um, one of the other topics that people ask about, and of course they ask you all the time, and maybe you want to just go ahead and set the record straight, uh, Chris, is about um, what happens in selection. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you see that a lot. You see that a lot on podcasts with guys that talk. And um, I will tell you, no one is ever going to tell you day by day what goes on in selection. Uh, I will tell you that the unit that I was a part of was, in my opinion, the greatest at screening and selecting applicants even to attend. 
Um, and they do that based on a number of factors, uh, intelligence, psychological profile, physical fitness. Um, you know, there's no, there's no secrets there. Um, they're damn good at it. They're damn good at it. And they get better every year. There's more science. Um, and some of it is stuff that they found out in doing research for other things. Mm. Um, like TBI research is a great example. You know, they started doing brain scans and looking at brain activity and cognitive function as a result of TBI research. Wow. And what that led to was an understanding of cognitive function and how it relates to individuals making it through selection and assessment. And that is fascinating. Yeah. Um, so they're very good at screening applicants. Um, know that if you are selected to attend, that you meet certain criteria to be there. It's only to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the physical and mental aspect is on you. So, um, you know, that particular course for the Army's SMU is uh, an individual event. Um, no one is going to yell at you. No one's going to tell you how fast or how slow to go. go. They're going to give you uh, a set of instructions, and you follow those instructions to the best of your ability. Um, and those that are still standing at the end are the ones that get selected, and, and that's just you're a third of the way there at that point. Um, so, yeah, guys always ask questions like, I, I think I always say the same thing, which probably pisses people off, but don't quit. Like, yeah. just, and if you, if you never deselect, what is it? Self-select. Don't see self-select. Don't self-select. And if you, if yeah. you, if you attempt, whatever it is, if you self, self deselect, if you attend yeah. any assessment and selection and you're unsuccessful, AAR it with yourself. Mm. What happened? Why wasn't I successful? What could I do better next time? And then fight to go back. I mean, you know this and we've laughed about it. I have failed everything, <laughs> everything. I've been fired it's from a stuff. Cool story. I've though. failed things. <laughs> Um, the difference was, is I just didn't let it beat me. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean that it didn't feel shitty. It doesn't mean that I was down in the dumps when those things happened. And in some cases, you know, like leaving the regiment, it took me a substantial amount of time to recover from that. But I did. Um, when I left the unit, you know, you lose your identity. I, I mean, and that was way later on in my career when I had yeah. all kinds of other issues going on that I wasn't even aware of at the time, you know, talking head trauma and things like that. Mm-hmm but I didn't let it beat me. Um, so, you know, don't give up and don't ever let somebody tell you you can't do something. It, that last part and everything that you said, honestly, you could probably apply to everything in life. I agree. You know, I mean, you know, if I, you were giving advice to a 17, 18 year old who is coming to you and to say, you know, I've got a lot of things on my plate right now. I'm trying to decide between this or that, whether it's different universities, whether it's going to taking particular jobs or whatever. You could sit down and have a similar conversation with them about, you know, you got to determine what your path is. You got to figure out if this is truly where you want to go. If it is, then hell or high water, put everything you've got into it to make sure that you're successful as the outcome. That's right. Now, there's going to be things that could be outside of your control that, you know, are going to end influence those decisions that you think you already have figured out, you know, because if I put my head to it, I'm going to be able to make it. Yet these outside influences could derail all that type of stuff. So you need to have then a backup plan. That's what right. is your contingency? You know, 
And, and it's weird that people um, don't apply those types of roles. I think what's even stranger is those who, who have served in active duty military, we probably both have seen it, where they don't apply those things that they used in the military to their job going out and transition or anything. We call those professional veterans. <laughs> yeah. And that's a shitty, that's a yeah. shitty moniker. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I was, that's what I was going to say. I, I, you, it doesn't mean that you're going to be great at it. Like some days you wake up and you just don't want to do shit. Mm-hmm. You just don't have the motivation, but you don't let it stay like that. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm guilty of it. You pick your topic. It really doesn't matter. And it affects you your entire life. TBI stuff. You know, like we've talked in the past, I have shrapnel in my head. I can't have a brain scan done. I can't because it's using MRI technology yeah. with magnets. I Magus. can't do that. Yeah. Um, I got frustrated trying to understand my own illnesses for a while. Mm. So I just kind of went, I'm doing pretty good. And I stopped paying attention to it. Do you get inside your own head? Yeah. I do the same thing. That's terrible. And, you know, some time goes by and, you know, recently I got motivated about it again. I was like, I wonder what's changed. And I'm talking to a lot of people and just this weekend, I had some great conversations. I found out some things I did not know. Mm -hmm. I found out some technology that I did not know about that if I hadn't have put myself out there and re-engaged and, and, been fortunate enough to be around people that are interested and worried about and researching these things. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's like, Ooh, and it lit the fire again. I was like, Oh man, there's some new stuff out there. I can go figure this out. Not just for myself, but so that I can then share that with other people and talk about it and go, here's what I did. This is how it's helping me. This is how it isn't so on and so forth. But yeah, those rules that, that pick yourself up, dust yourself off and fucking do it again. Mm-hmm. That works in everything in life. Um, and you've got to remind yourself of that when you, when you're not, when you're not motivated and you're sitting there going, oh man, I don't feel like doing this. That that's the time that you really need to kick yourself in the butt. If, if you're sitting around like even on active duty though, it's funny when I, when I, when you were saying this, it kind of popped in my head. If you're sitting around and you're waiting for your buddy to motivate you, that's the problem. Oh yeah. You've got to self-motivate. And I think that's what you're saying. At some point you've got to, you got to constantly stop, take a breath, reflect, Self-analyze in some ways, not getting too deep inside your head, but at least to the point of, hey, wake up. Yeah. You know, you're getting down to the dumps. You know, it's sucking the life out of you, and you got to put things one foot in front of the other again. Try something new. Yeah. Talk to people. Do some research. Something. Change it up. Yep. But find a way to motivate yourself to get to where you want to be. Somebody asked, were the Chechens in Afghanistan um, with Al-Qaeda early GWAT? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Chechens have been in Afghanistan for as long as I can remember. Uh, I will tell you that when we were in Afghanistan, you saw fair-skinned, red hair, red beard people, um, which are either, A, descendants of Chechens that had children with Afghanis and or they are Chechens. So my answer would be, yes, they were there. <laughs> if you're asking, did we get in fights with former people from the Soviet Union. Uh, no, not that I recall, mm-hmm. but you know, my rotation to Afghanistan, we did a handful of hits and, and yeah, that was 2002 and it was a whole lot different than it was, uh, you know, 10 years later. So, um, some guys wanted to know about like, and you can tell me whether you want to go down this, but like, um, you know, scariest, funniest moments or whatever of things that happen, um, that you can talk about that, Maybe, you know, you might talk about some of these things in certain circles, but I mean, something that's just more of like, um, 
you want to throw out there? I don't know. Throw out? I don't know. Uh, what popped into my head when you said that was uh, a, f- a few weeks back, I was in Virginia Beach um, for uh, <clears throat> for a trade show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the beach, there's a lot of Navy SEALs at the beach. And a lot of my friends that are SEALs are retired. And so, I, you know, you get to catch up with some people and see some guys you haven't seen in a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was hanging out with a with a former retired SEAL buddy of mine that I've known for a lot of years that I, uh, I did a trip um, with sort of late in my operational career in, in 2008. Is that the Horn um, of Ac- the Africa? Trip? Yeah, it was my second one, mm. um, which was which was a relatively uneventful trip. And I know people love to hear stories of combat, but this one really makes me laugh. Uh, and I think it's unique. <laughs> but um, I'll preface this with one of the great things about working in a joint environment goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, is that you have to get to know the people around you and their strengths and weaknesses, and you never know somebody's story. When I was working in the Horn of Africa, it was a joint mission. And, you know, you had guys from the Navy, you had guys from the Air Force, you had guys from the Army, et cetera, et cetera, and guys from the Marine Corps. Um, And everybody brought a little something to the table. So from a planning perspective, um, you know, execution is execution. Fundamentals are fundamentals. Um, You know, when you're prosecuting a target or going after a bad guy, shit's the same across a breadth of forces, especially at that point in the war. But, but from a planning perspective, you all have different experiences and things that you bring to the table. So the long and short of it is, is we were trying to get, um, into Somalia, uh, to link up with some forces that were there. Um, but it was very hard to do. Uh, Mogadishu was very denied at the time. Um, and you had a couple of other countries that had forces in Mogadishu trying to keep the peace and keep things in order. But we couldn't just roll into the city. Um, there weren't, for lack of a better term, there weren't any white guys in Mogadishu at the time. So you stood out like a sore thumb. So mm-hmm. we were trying to come up with creative ways to, to be able to do that. And, you know, the Navy guy said, well, you know, we got these ships off the coast. Why don't we use that and do an over the beach? And everyone's going to think this is going someplace really cool. And it's not. <laughs> it's a funny story. Um, so anyway, so we, uh, you know, go to the coast. Basically, um, we were working out of out of Nairobi, Kenya. So we flew out to Mombasa and did some stuff, work on the coast and did some training. Um, and so this Navy SEAL proceeded to teach me you know, boat ops, for lack of a better term. We had a, a, a rib team that supported us, so 11-meter ribs, you mm-hmm. know, inflatable mm-hmm. high speeds. And um, so we did everything those from... Are the, those are the ones they throw the seals in uh, uh, into the, the boat? Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like you always see in the yeah, in, yeah, they, in the Navy commercials because everybody's a Navy SEAL. That's right. And uh, so, yeah, we spent a couple <laughs> days, like, like, dumping off the boat and swimming in. And, yeah. you know, this is how you waterproof your kit. And it was pretty cool. Like, yeah. for, for an Army guy, it was pretty cool. Yeah. But I didn't think a whole lot about it. Well, it was my second rotation there, so technically I was the senior guy, so I was in charge of this op. So where I ended up finding myself is on a Navy Amphib, uh, LSD-41, the Whippy Island out of Washington State. Uh, And I have, under my control, operational control, so I'm an enlisted Army guy, and I have a... LSD-41, an amphib ship, a Navy destroyer, and a, and a Navy submarine, all under my operational control. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's like I said, it sounds cool, but there's nothing cool going to happen at the end of this. But the highlight of the entire trip, so again, this SEAL is training me up, 
and we finally take the ribs offshore. We link up with the Samfib. Um, and getting on a Navy ship is a complicated task from a small boat to a big boat. You know, it's ladders and getting close and um, it's high sea state. So the sea's traveling, you know, 22, 23 feet. It's a hell of a workout. It's a hell of a workout. <laughs> and so when you pull up next to the big boat on a little boat and they throw the ladder down, one minute the ladder is right in front of you. The next minute the ladder, the bottom rung of the ladder is 20 feet above your head because <laughs> the waves are rocking back and forth. And I think, uh, I think Scrappy said to me, which was the seal I was with, Scrappy said, um, yeah, when it comes down, he's like, you want to grab it on the down, like at the very bottom of the down. Mm-hmm. So grab the ladder as high up as you can. That way, when it shifts, you're above where the boats come back together. Because if you end up between them, it'll sting a bit. And so <laughs> anyway, it all goes well. We execute this plan. We get on this boat. Yeah. And then he sort of ribbed me afterwards. And he was like, typically, we wouldn't do this with the sea state this high. But uh, he's like, we weren't jagging it in. We were just getting on the boat. And he's like, I figured you'd be good. So we just did it. <laughs> So we get on this boat and there's, there's, you know, five or six of us. Um, and we had some other folks in support, but again, this is like my, my op. And so they put us up in the Marine officer's quarters on the LSD 41. Um, I think the boat, cause they didn't tell everybody who we were and we were in civilian clothes and some guys had beards and whatnot and, and not me. Right. <laughs> but, uh, I think they just assumed we were seals or whatever. So. Uh, I think it's like the first day we were there and the whistle goes off on the boat, you know, the right. like before they make an announcement, right. which makes me giggle anyway, because here I am on this boat and it wasn't my first time on a boat, but it was the first time like this. And uh, uh, they say over the loudspeaker, Chris, report to the bridge. And Scrappy and I just bust out laughing because every announcement you heard to that point, it was very formal and very Navy. It was like, you know, petty officer, whatever, report to whatever. And they said Chris because that was all they knew of me. And so I asked Scrap where the bridge was. And he said, yeah, we got to go this way. He's like, I'll show you. So we're climbing around the boat, ladders and stairs. And we get up there and I walk into the bridge. And it's, it's literally for me, it's like you see in a movie. It's like some people standing around a bunch of windows and then the skipper is standing next to this big round like radar that's you know like the circular like yeah. bloop, like you see yeah. in the movies yeah and so again i'm trying to be serious and the the skipper's like how you doing blah blah, blah. you guys doing okay you know the quarters are all right i said yeah he's like all right he's like you know i understand what we have going on he's like but we have a ship approaching and i go what do you mean you have a ship approaching and he said yeah we have a uh, there's a relief ship that is coming into the port of Mogadishu to drop off some supplies. Um, and they're going to pop up over the horizon here soon and see us. And I said, okay. And he's like, well, you know, I know that we're not technically supposed to be here. We're on assignment conducting other missions. And I wanted to see what you wanted us to do about it. And I looked at Scrappy and, and then I looked back at the captain and I said, mm, I don't know, take evasive maneuvers. <laughs> <laughs> You just had to, right? I did, I did. <laughs> and Scrabby couldn't hold it back. He started laughing. <laughs> and I was like, I, I don't know, Skip, what would you normally do? And then we laughed and we had a conversation. I was like, I was like I'm was like, i an Army dude, man. Like, yeah, like a, He's a Navy guy. I was like, he's probably better to ask. And he's like, oh, oh okay. But, you know, we, the three of us had a good laugh about it. But, yeah, I mean, we ended up doing some other things. But the joke of it was, uh, like, and I think I said it to Scrappy at the time, I'm like... How many army guys have had three, that opportunity? Three naval ships assigned to them, and then get asked a question. Looking at one of the circular radars you see in the movie, <laughs> what would you like us to do, sir? Yeah, I have no fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it wasn't like you could all of a sudden just go dark. 
you know, yeah, you're no, no. there. No, it, it was it was broad daylight, and, yeah. and and you know, I found out later, and because I asked a lot of questions after, yeah. but you know, they run patterns in the sea. They can turn yeah. figure eights. They can they see stuff way before that stuff sees them, so they can maneuver off over the horizon, so they're not made. And you know, basically, we were the sub we weren't worried about, but we were two ships in a place that. Uh, technically, we weren't supposed to be, and we didn't want anybody to know that. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, he was all serious as a heart attack with this question. <laughs> but, you know, he probably didn't expect the guy to start laughing that is in charge of his boat. But uh, it, was probably, it was probably because you guys were already laughing when you went on the bridge that it was just like the perfect moment. Is like, but I'm bump. It know, was. You just, yeah, you just you, you had to close it out. You don't want to be unprofessional, but at the same time, come on, this is funny. <laughs> So, yeah, awesome. because, that, because that came up recently, that's one of the funnier ones that's unique, I think. Uh, lots of guys have. You had two cool Navy stories now, then. I did, yeah. Yeah, naval gunfire from the first yep. trip. Um, yeah, and then and then this. So, yeah, I've had quite a bit of, of blue water experience, I guess, for, mm -hmm. uh, for a green suitor. Yeah. First time uh, at 82nd, uh, or his time at 82nd Pathfinder. Um, someone was, I guess, in the same unit couple years after you had left and i guess they're wanting to know a little bit about like uh what do you think about that time frame we touched on this during the podcast we did i can't remember what we said though yeah so i left you um, weren't you weren't real happy going in there no initially. no when I, I left the special mission unit and um i had to you know you i could kind of pick wherever i wanted to go in the service and um i tried to pick uh, it's a long story about my SF tab and why I didn't have my Green Beret at the time, even though I had been mm -hmm. through school watch. I think we yep. we touched on we that. We did. But so I, I hadn't worked all that out yet. So I was still in 11 Bravo um, E8. And so I picked a, a Halo slot on Fort Bragg. I was like, what Halo slots are there? And one of them was the Pathfinder Company first sergeant. It was Pathfinder Company because it used to be the, it used to be the 82nd's um, uh, recon? Yeah, yeah, recon battalion. And they reflagged it a Pathfinder company, and then they moved it out from under the MI battalion, military intelligence battalion and division. They moved it over to 82nd Cab so it could support all the aviation mm -hmm. assets that they had. Um, so, yeah, so I got over there. Um, them wanting me to be the first sergeant, they were due to deploy in about six months of me getting there. Um, and I had a conversation with the guy that was the acting first sergeant who I outranked, but he had been there and grown up in that company and was a great dude and a good leader. And I said, look, man, I'm not, A, I'm not going to deploy because um, I had a lot of personal stuff going on and I addressed that with the chain of command. But, you know, why don't you stay in the role that you're in and you guys can make me an, an ops NCO or whatever. So I helped with training and jumps and all that stuff. It was a great place. You had a lot of legacy guys that were from the original division element mm -hmm. um, and some good NCOs. And, you know, they did stuff that nobody else in the 82nd did. You know, they were, a, they used to be a Lurst detachment. So they jumped free fall. They did water ops. They did, you know, for a infantry kid, it was fun stuff. Yeah. Lurst and Lurp were like, those are badass, especially like post Vietnam or Vietnam. And then the post Vietnam guys. Yeah, actually. Yeah. I mean, you're a, you're a few, you were a few years ahead of me in the service. Your generation of guys, Lurst was it, man. Yeah. Like, it, it was it. Those yeah. guys that came out of those Lurch units, which there were several back in the 80s and early 90s, yeah. they all went on to lead the Army in a lot of positions yeah. of great responsibility because it was so different. I would be curious, you know, I almost wanted to reach back out, maybe I will, to the individual ask that question because it would be interesting to see, did Chris leave a legacy 
in the Pathfinder unit. Yeah. Two years later, that was still being the effects of Chris being there. And I was I was not in a good place. <laughs> See, I know. Yeah. That's why it's like uh, it's interesting that he says it because I mean there is a common ground that you both share, but yet. You're going to have very different experiences. Yeah. And um, yours wasn't necessarily positive at that time frame. No, 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 no. You weren't yeah. a happy camper that you didn't get a chance to stay within the unit. No, I, I, I wasn't at all. I mean, that... You understood, but yet... And you know how frank I am about all this, but that year, that year that I was there in that Pathfinder company, that was the year that I almost took my life. Yeah. Like, I was bottomed out. And I don't think that, you know, those guys knew that. Yeah. Um, I don't think they knew the place that I was in. Mm-hmm. Um, because I would show up when I showed up and when we would do training events, I would give what I could give to the equation Had a good chain of command, like in the company, company leadership was solid. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they just kind of left me alone. Um, right, wrong or indifferent. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it was short lived. There were a lot of good guys there. I, I, you know, I wish I could remember them all, but I, frankly, I was just in such a bad place and unfortunately I don't remember a lot of them. So yeah, I would hope that they, they would say, <laughs> yeah, we were glad to have him. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but the reality is, this is a low point in my life. I mean, I bowed out of a leadership role and I bowed out of a deployment. Yeah. Um, that was big and heavy. That was big and heavy, especially for someone, de- someone like you, you know, there's, the image. It's like going back full circle of what we were talking about, what we think. What What do you mean he's not wanting to go? What do you mean that, you know, and again, they don't know your story. No, no, didn't. And, and uh, you know, looking back, right, reflection is, is way better than when you're in it. Oh, yeah. But looking back, bowing out of that deployment was probably the best thing I've ever could have done. Like I was not in the right headspace. Yeah, that that could have gone south. And a not just for you, but for others. For others, yeah. It could have been so much worse. It could have been catastrophic. Yeah. Um. You know, I don't know what being over there with a unit like that. You know, whatever their mission set, well, that could have pushed me over the edge. Like it could. Yeah. So I, I'm glad that I'm glad that the leadership around me supported my decision. Um. I mean, at the time, I used my marriage and my children as the excuse mm. but, but the reality was was my head was not right and you know i don't know how i got there but somehow i thought you know i've deployed 11 times and i'm really messed up and i probably shouldn't go for this 12th one so talk about getting your head right i do before we close out when i ask you or talk a little bit about your recent trip oh yeah and um so for those who may not be familiar with uh or follow chris on a regular basis i mean you're really big into you know, climbs and going to different countries and experience it. The the photos that you put up, I, I mean, just looking at these things, I, and I said something like, you know, my God, you know, breathtaking or whatever. And I scroll through some of the other comments and I see everybody saying breathtaking, breathtaking or whatever. And I think, oh, he's probably just going to think, you know, okay, I just repeated everybody else. And probably everybody else thought the same thing. But holy cow, man, those photos. And I can't imagine what it was actually like there because it's like, you know, for me, if I go to someplace like um, tropical, like Hawaii or whatever, they always tell you, you know, you put on the, I I love Maui gym sunglasses, especially when I'm there because they really do bring the uh, colors in Yeah. and they always tell you when you're there on the islands that if you're going to take a photo, make sure you take it to one of our uh, development locations because they'll get the colors right. Yeah. And for those who watch, you know, games or, you know, sports or whatever TV and sometimes the helmet doesn't look right or the uniform doesn't look right. Listen, that control booth, that guy out there in the truck, 
is jacking with he's, the colors. He's messing that up. And he's getting it all wrong, yeah. you know, and no one's really paying attention to it or whatever. And sometimes just because they don't know what they're doing. So I can only imagine in that moment uh. when you're really trying to suck it in. and But you take a photo, you take a video, and if we're blown away. Yeah. I And uh, so, yeah, I'll cover a couple of things. But on the picture side... Um, I'm a camera guy. I have several. I used to be a Canon guy. I switched to Sony A7III-R or whatever hmm. this past year. So a mirrorless um, DSLR. Um, but a lot of those photos I take with an iPhone um, because it's really good at varying light. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's auto stuff is almost better than you can do manually with a DSLR. Um, so I take a lot of iPhone photos. Uh, they, I rarely ever touch up or edit any of them. Um, sometimes, yeah, you'll get a little color that'll, and I'll adjust it back to what it really looked like. But, yeah. But re- very rarely do I ever edit those. Those are, those are for real. Um, and I share them um, mainly to spark interest um, and so that I'm afforded the opportunity to make my points about why I do the stuff that I do in the backcountry. One of these days, I'm going to do a podcast just on hiking stuff. Oh, that'd be awesome. Um, well, and because for I think it's important to know why. It's yeah. therapeutic for you. Yeah. So, you know, if, if no one's ever heard this, um, and I'll, I'll be brief, but when I retired from the service um, with all the injuries that I've sustained and all the things, one of my biggest problems was I was an insomniac. Um, and the first big outdoor thing that I did post-service was I hiked John Muir Trail. Um, so three weeks, 226 miles, started in Yosemite National Park and finished on the summit of Mount Whitney. Um, that three weeks, wh- whatever you call it, reset your circadian rhythm or whatever, that three weeks of getting up when the sun comes up, physically exhausting yourself all day and going to bed when the sun goes down, reset my sleep yeah, cycle. It's the melatonin. I mean, a lot of people think, uh, actually say that when you wake up, it's better not to have the curtains closed, but have them open. So your natural melatonin. Yep. And so it... it cured my insomnia. I returned from that trip um, and started a healthy routine of waking up early in the morning when the sun comes up or mm-hmm. slightly before it and going to the gym and working out um, before I begin my day. And then, you know, trying to eat healthy. And uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not one of those weird diet people who do that stuff. I love Doritos and pizza and whatever, but I eat uh, other than probably Doritos. I am a whole foods person. Um, fresh foods, you know, mostly eat at home, prepared meals, don't eat a lot of junk, stuff like that. So, um, yeah, so reset my cycle. Um, I have not had a sleep issue in six years. Um, which is pretty incredible. It's really incredible. Uh, the, what I get from stuff in the backcountry, um, it, there's a million and one things, but to touch on just a few for listeners, one is I spent 20 years in the military. Planning and executing a backcountry trip in any form or fashion is just like planning a military operation. You, mm-hmm. There's logistics involved. There's route planning. There's map reading and na- land navigation. There's contingencies. You know, all of the same things that you've done forever play into that. Um, so it allows you to plan something the way that you want to do it. Uh, usually there's some difficulty involved um, with the task that you're trying to complete. And then when you execute your plan, deal with any contingencies, and then you complete that mission, it's cathartic. Like it fills a piece of that that you lose when you leave the military. So for me, it allows me to kind of keep that, whatever that part of me is going. Um, another key point is doing it as a couple um, or with friends. 
um, or alone. Uh, I, I don't, I've never done it alone. My, my wife and I do it all together. Um, and what we found is it gives you a space where the rest of the world is turned off. So there's no distractions, there's no social media, there's no cell phones, there's no calls, there's no emails, there's no television. You have nothing to do other than appreciate nature, the things around you and what you're doing and each other. Um, so you will have some of the deepest, most valued and important conversations that you ever have with your friend or your spouse. Mm -hmm. You will talk about things that normally may be very difficult for you to discuss because you have nothing but time in your head. It's mm -hmm. like, it's like distance runners, you know, and they, they say, I love it. I love when I'm 10 miles in and I get in my head and I'm, you just solving the world's problems. Yeah. It's because you have no distraction. You have nothing that pulls at you and you're, you're, you're detoxing. You're detoxing. It's your Zen garden and it allows your brain to go to a place. I almost wonder, do you go like into withdrawals? I mean, it sounds stupid, but yeah. there are people like, you know, you say I'm not going to pick up my phone or whatever, but yet what do you do? Like two hours later, three hours later, you're like, shit, I can, you know, you look at it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I've learned to really appreciate it now. So I like to turn it all off. Uh, if I, I do go into withdrawals for the next thing, um, which I guess is okay. I'm sure it could get, I could get a little unhealthy, right? Cause yeah, you still yeah. have to be a productive member of society. I can't just be a hippie and run around the mountains all the time. Well, there's a lot of nomads out there right now. I noticed, <laughs> but, but yeah. So, um, for me having that, that next trip to look forward to is yeah. really important. Um, you know, I've said this before, but like people around me know, like it, it when things start to weigh on me and, and stress and, you know, I struggle ups and downs with depression, but when that stuff starts to creep in, I know that I can get out in the woods or, or go climb something or go do something and reconnect with myself. And I come back, recharge, refresh, and I feel better. And I want people to know that like, doesn't have to be that just that yeah. thing. I yeah. just want people to know that something as simple as that is cheap and cost effective is that you don't have to travel all over the world. Obviously yeah. you can even do it here in the U S yeah. I know, I know there's a lot of veterans have done that all over the U S yeah. so it's, it's really important to me. It's been really healthy for me. It's been really, um, it's, it keeps me sustainable, I mm -hmm. guess. Um, so I, I do my best to, to talk about that. It's why I share photos. It's why I take photos, uh, not just for the keepsake and the memories of them, because I love to go back and look at them. Yeah. When I feel bad, I look at, oh man, that was such a great trip. Uh, yeah. That thing was so amazing or that whatever it was. Um, but yeah, so the last one, well, since the last time I talked to you, we were in Ecuador um, in January and we did five summits in Ecuador and then and finished on Cotopaxi in miserable weather. But Cotopaxi was like 19.5. Um, and then we were supposed to go to Russia this summer to start my first of the seven summits um, and climb Mount Elbrus, but COVID shut that down. So we, as an American, well, as an outsider, I couldn't fly into Russia and go do that. Um, so backburnered that wanted to do something high altitude. Um, and my wife was like, we just did Cotopaxi. Can we just do a hike? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to just go up. Yeah. <laughs> Can yeah. we throw some variation? Yeah. So I, that kind of, I, I'm sorry to take you off. It almost reminds me like those, I used to love scuba diving, but I, every, everybody wanted to do rag dives and go deep. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah like, you got to change it. Can up. I just blow bubbles? Yep. Look yep. at fish. Something, something shallow. <laughs> right. Look at fish. Yeah. No, that's exactly what it was. And she was right. Like she was right. Like, yeah. I'm, I get it stubborn. still worked for you. Oh no, no, it always works. Yeah. 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 So, so we went to, uh, Peru, um, to do the Waiwash trek. Uh, Waiwash is a mountain range in, um, in the Andes in Peru. Mm -hmm. Uh, so about eight, nine hours from, uh, from Lima. 
but uh, that range is where um, Sula Grand is, is one of the bigger peaks in the area. It's the second highest peak in the area. And that's where uh, the, the book Touching the Void uh, or the movie, if you've ever seen Mm-mm. that. Uh, I guess I need to check it out. Yeah, two climbers um, were climbing the mountain, got swept off the mountain in an avalanche, and one ended up suspended below the other by about 100 feet of rope. And they had a decision where um, either we, I hang here trying to support my buddy. They were both injured, so there's no way he was pulling him up. He was literally hanging off a cliff below him 100 feet. Uh, and he had to make the choice of do I cut him away and hope that one or both of us survive uh, and that he lives through the fall, or do I just hang on here until we both freeze to death and die? But don't tell me the end, because then I, I won't be able to watch the movie. And uh, well, okay. Well, you can watch it or read it. <laughs> okay, because now you've got me like... I'll tell you, they, they both live. Okay, but, that's good. But the story of it is absolutely incredible. Um, and it's one of those things you read it, and you're like, how in the hell do you get to a decision like that? But, yeah. But when you read it, you understand it. So I would recommend the book over the movie, but... Um, oh, really? But, yeah, it's a cool story. Well, I mean, I, most times, you know, the books are better than movies, but... But, yeah, so Seal Grand is in the middle of that range. And, yeah. And the Hawaii Trek is basically like a 85-mile circuit of that range. And there's the traditional one, which people use donkeys and carry their stuff, and they carry day packs, um, and there's guide services that do that. And then there's the Alpine Circuit, which is much higher, and it's what the climbers use to get access to some of the bigger peaks. We sort of intertwine them both. Um, and we did it by ourselves, the two of us, unaided in nine days. Um, nine, ten days is about our max loadout, self-sustained, because after that, weight start getting a little ridiculous, and mm. it's, it's just not fun. Um, but, yeah, the, the whole, you know, 85 miles or so, 87 miles, I think we did total, uh, you're basically above 12.5 the whole time. Um, Man. The highest pass was like 16.7, uh, just incredible. And there was no one there. Uh, we saw one other group, like a guided group, using donkeys and horses and all that. Um, we did not see any other non-guided hikers on the trip. So a lot of Peruvian herders and stuff that live high up in the mountains, um, and that was interesting. But literally, it was like having the Andes to yourself. Um, so it was awesome. Um, I highly recommend it to anybody. Uh, but yeah, so next, so the reason we stayed high altitude, and Hawaii has been on our list for a while, my wife was nervous because it is so high altitude and, and it messes with you. I mean, it just sucks mm-hmm. taking a step at that altitude. But we wanted to stay high after doing Cotopaxi and then that. Um, so we're going to do Aconcagua in January in Argentina. So the tallest mountain outside of the Himalayas. And I didn't want to jump forward that quick, but we're ready. Um, and it's the right time to do it. So, yeah, so this January we'll do Aconcagua and... You know, we'll probably throw some hiking stuff in in between, but but I was yeah. Gonna say, do you ever do like uh, build up to get your prepared at least? Like maybe do six thousand stop uh, for a series of time, like a day or so to acclimate. Yeah, so and- we we spent three days, um, three full days in a town called Juarez, which is in the foothills in the Andes. Um, I say foothills. Juarez, the town is at ten five or something like that. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, and we did day hikes out of there. Um, so we got progressively higher each day. So we spent three days, three full days acclimating. And then we used Dymox. Um, Dymox is a uh, basically an altitude sickness drug. Um, I think it's a blood thinner, to be honest with you. Mm. But it allows you to move oxygen more efficiently through your bloodstream. Uh, and Dymox helps a lot if you're susceptible to altitude sickness like I am. Um, once I'm acclimated well, it's not a problem. But I've been really sick before doing things too quickly. So I 
yeah, I cheat. How, how does that work? Um, I know one day you're, you're going to want to do a podcast on this, but I'm just curious, like in terms of like a you know scuba diving and stuff, you have to worry about atmospheres that you're going down, and then you have to worry about maybe how long before that uh, or after that you get on a flight. So I'm curious, was there any th- concerns like if you're um, no? Yeah, okay. it's, no, n- not with not with altitude. Yeah, so um, it's not like you can't go up to twelve thousand or fifteen thousand, and then all of a sudden next day you get on a flight. Not not, not that I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just like anything else. It's, it's training and acclimatization. Like you just, mm-hmm. just got to be careful. I've been super sick, and both times I've been super sick were relatively low elevations here in the U.S. So I got really sick on on Mount Langley in California, which is a like a fifteen thousand foot mountain. Um, and then actually, it's you can see it from Mount Whitney, so it's just shorter than Whitney. Got really sick up there because I drove from Phoenix sea level. Out there, I spent the night at ten thousand feet, and the next morning I went to the summit and back down, and I got sick. Yeah. I, got, I got sick on uh, on Humphreys and Flagstaff, which is only twelve five. Um, too much, too fast. Too much, too fast. And some people are more susceptible than others. It has nothing to do with fitness. It has nothing to do with anything. Mm-hmm. Just it really affects some people, and some people it doesn't. And I'm, that's why I have to be careful. Yeah, I think what's cool about what you just described too is just um, finding that outlet. Finding that thing that does it for you, whatever it may be, where you can check out, you can just veg, take those moments to, to really go back into sometimes what I long for is those those periods where I was a kid. And if you wanted to call the house or you want to call us, you'd call the house. And when you called the house, it was hung on the wall. You know, the phone was. And if we weren't home to answer it, we didn't know you even called because there wasn't such a thing as an answer machine. Yep. And I'd love to almost get back to that stage in some ways where, you know, we've become a society that we feel like we have to be tethered all the time. And so these types of moments for you are those opportunities where you can do that again in a sense. And that's what you just described. But you don't have to do that, like you said, in a foreign country. You can just do that. Like, how about leaving the phone at home or turn it off so that you know that it's, it's there if you want to um, turn it back on for an emergency situation, if that's, you know, the game. But um, get away. Check yeah. out. And believe it or not, as, as widespread as cell services in the U.S. now, there are still plenty of places to 5G go. 5G network, baby. There's so many places to go where you <laughs> don't right. have coverage. So yeah. it still there really exists. is. Yeah. It, it was crazy. We were in uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming uh, on that topic uh, about a month and a half ago, my wife and I and some friends. And when we were in Jackson Hole, the this, this coverage there in Jackson Hole was kind of spotty. But as soon as we got in the car and we wanted to drive and go hiking somewhere, it didn't take very long before phone's dead yep it's out and you know we had our bear spray and everything else just in case and stuff uh but there were moments where we sat there and i pulled out the camera because i wanted to capture the moment in a photo but then i looked at my wife and i'm like i'm kind of glad the damn thing's not working yeah it's i don't need to send this to instagram right now i I don't need to you know what i mean i i do yeah The, the the healing that nature provides is profound. I did, and we won't belabor it, but I did a grizzly bear hunt this year. Um, Alaskan brown bear. I was, yeah, I didn't know if we wanted to go into that. Yeah, and I, I, I won't. Yeah. But the point that I want to make is everybody's like, oh, it's amazing. You know, you took a, a peninsula brown bear. You know, how everyone wants to know how big it is. Yeah. You know, then there's the other side that going, you did what? Yeah, yeah <laughs> there's the downside. Okay, guys, it was once in a lifetime. You know, yeah. I'm not going to go shoot a bear every year. That's a once in a lifetime hunt. And it's a majestic, amazing animal. And they're they're very well, the population is managed and cultivated and they do a good job with it up there. Probably, mm-hmm. probably better than 
most management of other species in the U.S. But, but yes, yes, there's that side of it. But honestly, what I really, really enjoyed was it was just me and a guide, and it was a guide that I know, and we just got to hang out in the Alaskan wilderness, like and watch bears and watch moose, and because you see them every day. I mean, mm. we, we, we saw brown bears every single day, and you were like roughing it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah because this plane took you in and dumped us. Yeah, with the with the tent. Yeah. Yep, in the middle of nowhere, no cell coverage, no nothing, um, in bear country. And yeah, we just got to hang out and move around. Man and, versus wild. Yeah, and I appreciated just being out there as much as I did taking that bear. Yeah. Um and that's that's why I think people forget. Like it's it's not about the it's not even about the accomplishment. You don't necessarily have to go hike and achieve something. That's cool and it ticks a box and it, and it a box and it helps some things, but but just being out there you will find that it is very, very therapeutic, and, and more people should find things like that. Find a hobby. Find something to do that isn't your profession, isn't your work, that gives you some comfort and clarity of thought, and go do it. Chris, looking forward to the next time? Yeah, man. Anytime. Love yeah. being here. Yeah. And likewise, love having you. And uh, you guys send in some topics, and then maybe the next time Chris is around, we'll do it again. And uh Maybe we'll play it, uh, you know, and see how things kind of roll at that time frame when uh, the friend comes in and we're able to do the next podcast and the show and stuff and have you as a co-host. I love having you on the other side, too, not just as a, a friend on the other side of the mic, but also when you're a co-host and you get a chance to, like, interact with the guest. Yeah, so. it's, co-hosting is cool. It's like you're on the other side. You don't have to say anything. If you've, if That's you, right. If you got a good question, you can, <laughs> but there's no pressure you there. just got to edge on the other person to talk. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. no, it's really cool, man. I really do appreciate you taking the time out to do this. Yeah, man. Keep doing your thing. Love the show. Love what you guys do and love the guests you have on. So, uh, yeah, anytime. So, Chris, I'm going to give you an opportunity to go ahead and, uh, you know, do a same shameless plug. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to throw out, like, uh, if, if folks that follow me, I'm Vansant Tier Tactical uh, at Insta, uh, company I work for, Tier Tactical. Obviously, guys, if you have uh, body armor needs or, uh, or kit needs, uh, it's tiertactical.com. And then um, w- one of the charities that I'm passionate about um, and I'm actually on the board of is the uh, All Secure Foundation. Um, All Secure, number one, is trying to reduce the stigma of veterans um, and, and their spouses uh, seeking and, and receiving and asking for help. Um, but number two is, is they're focused on the family unit. They're focused on healing, uh, that entire veteran family, not just the veteran. Um, and really with a, with a big focus on, on PTS, post-traumatic stress in the veteran and then, and then secondary PTS that occurs within spouses. So, um, if you're looking for a good charity to support, please, please go check out all secure foundation. 